Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, as you know. I am the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which you can get as an audiobook, a paperback, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. The uh, two sequels are both fully available, so that will keep you busy for a while. Um, get going on that. Head to middlegradeninja.com for thousands of interviews with literary agents, authors, publishing professionals, all the best people. I wouldn't uh, wouldn't lead you straight. Plus, you can get the back catalog of this show, uh, and you know all of the episodes of that are amazing. Like, subscribe, do all the things. By God, let's get started. Uh, my guest uh, this uh, afternoon is Susan McCormick. Uh, Susan, how are you this evening? I'm fine, thanks. I'm so glad to uh, talk to you. Uh, everybody wants to talk to a doctor, uh, and <laughs> here you are, uh, and you have written an extremely timely novel. Um, so I guess my first question for you is, I know that you always wanted to be a ballerina, uh, and that apparently did not work out. Would you like to tell esteemed audience the, the, the terrible tale of uh, what happened? So, um when I was a kid, I wanted to be a doctor by day, a ballerina by night, and a writer all the time. That's what I wanted to be. And um, I took ballet lessons when I was four. I was well on my road to becoming a ballerina, uh, yet uh, very shortly into it, say just a month or so into it, we had our first performance, and I curtsied, and I hit with my bottom the backdrop, and it crashed to the floor. And that was the end of my ballerina days. When I was older um, in high school and college, I took ballet again, but I was so old. So that was it. That was over and done with. But I did become a doctor. I um, It was a pretty straight shot. You know, you go to medical school and then you do your residency and then you do your fellowship. And then I paid back the military because they had paid for my medical school. And then I was a doctor. And then, of course, I always wanted to be a writer, too. And that's a very long road and um, hard, but I feel extremely lucky now I'm a writer as well. I love that story because, you know, it feels like something you would see in a, a sitcom or read in a charming middle grade novel. But you, you very rarely get to talk to somebody for whom that actually happened. Uh, and so afterward, it was just immediately no ballet. I'm done with this forever. Or were you already kind of tired of it? And that just uh, finished it. It was so humiliating. So I was four, but this is how I remember it. And of course, the story has been told to me by my parents ad nauseum. But I remember being so proud of my performance. And I remember taking this wonderful, enormous curtsy. And then I just remember complete and utter humiliation. And really, I just, I never went back. <laughs> it's very sad. I probably wasn't cut out for it. Let's let's start with an embarrassing anecdote. I apologize. Let's get to your medical degree. You did all kinds of great stuff. Uh, so what uh, what prompted you for uh, the army is going to be the way to become uh, a doctor and a writer? So um, the military, when you're facing, as many young people are now, the um, prospect of medical school, which is extremely expensive, uh, you can take out loans, as many people do, or you can um, do public health or join the military. And the military has a very um, fairly uh, straightforward and time time. Um, uh, it's been a long, around a long time where uh, you go through the military, you do all your training, civilian typically. I did my residency in um, San Francisco when that was there, the Presidio, which was fantastic. And I actually did my basic training in Monterey, California when that was there, which was fantastic. Um, anyway, the military um, pays for your medical school. Uh, I did my additional training, uh, my my residency and my fellowship with the military, and then you pay back to them, which I did. It was phenomenal training. Um, the friends I made in the military are lifelong. It was a wonderful experience. Was that um, was that uh, choosing to go into the army? Was that primarily so that you could become a doctor, or did you want to be a soldier and then also a doctor? You're always an officer first but it was a way to pay for medical school, yeah. Fair enough, and I imagine that discipline must come in handy now that you're you're writing full-time. It does indeed, you know, um, so being a doctor, all these years writing, there's not 
a lot of time. And so for many, many years, I um, on the weekends, so I live in Seattle. It's a beautiful day here in Seattle, but we're already coming to the summer, um, the summer months and the sun gets up really early in the morning. It goes to bed really late. But um, at 4.30 in the morning in the summer, the sun shines into my uh, bedroom and wakes me up. Boing. So you wake up and then um, I would get up on the weekends and pad down two levels to here we are, which is where I do my writing. And my giant, black, silent, fluffy Newfoundland dog would pad down with me. And I would do my writing on the weekend mornings between about 4.30 and 9 o'clock when my family woke up. And for years, that's how I did it. In the winter, you know, the sun gets up really late in the winter in Seattle. I have to set an alarm. That's way harder. But um, but that's how I did my writing. But you're you're exactly right. In this past year, um, I have retired, and now I can write full time, which is fantastic. Congratulations. That's that's the dream. It is the dream. It is. Sounds like you've had several dreams come true, but this is a dream, right? <laughs> it is indeed. Um and um. I wanted to ask about about those weekends. So when you're working during the week, I'm always hearing excuses from students when I do a workshop, reasons they can't write. And so I love stories like this that I can I can show them a clip from this episode and say, hey, Susan McCormick had a whole bunch more than you've got going on and she found time to write. How many hours were, were you working a week at that time? Um, so it's it never adds up correctly because you have the days that you work and those days you know you we got there at 7:15 if not earlier and it would often go a long time late um but then you have call at nighttime you have call on the weekends and call doesn't mean you sit at home and you know do nothing call means the phone rings and often you have to go in and so it's very hard to add up the actual um the actual amount uh but it was a lot and so, uh, so those mornings on the weekends, it was like the only time I could do it. That's the other thing about it. Um, you're talking about sort of diligence because it was the only time I had to write. During the week, I kind of save up little bits and you know have little things written on pieces of paper, but that was the only time I had to write. So I had to sit down and write. I had to produce something on those uh, mornings. And so whether or not it was, I felt like it was flowing something. I had to type something. And so, so I really made good use of that time. Now that I have a little bit more time, if I'm having um, something isn't, isn't going right, I actually I'll go out and run. That's how I, I get things to really um, gel in my head. So I'll go out and take a run now. But in those days, I, in those days just ended, you know, this is just a new thing for me, this kind of all day thing. Um, but I would just, I would have to sit and write come whatever may. When when you're doing that, what's a successful morning look like? Do oh, pretty down pretty down successful. I uh, pretty darn successful. You know, sometimes you go back. Well, I, you know, I love the the first draft. Always my favorite draft because you can write anything you want, and it's just like complete magic happens. Like I'll give you for instance. Um, there's a dog in this uh, in this book, and um, I had uh, not the dog. Being the anecdote which released here May fifth. The antidote, the, the antidote, exactly. It's a middle grade medical fantasy. Um, and uh, so there's a dog in it. And my dog was here with me, but it was a different dog that I was thinking of when I wrote the dog character who our dog, we have we have these big Newfoundlands and they have all this fur in their scruff and they love they love water because they're they're water dogs and they would um, they'd like to put their head in their water bowl. So a lot of times their scruff is very wet. And this particular Newfoundland one Newfoundland ago named Edward, he always had a wet scruff and we just couldn't get him dry. Our other one, Albert, who um, was our, our last Newfoundland, he didn't have this problem. So it's just, I don't know why it was, but Edward's scruff was always wet and it, it never smelled very good. We just could not get it dry and, and um, pleasant smelling. And he had bad breath. And so he was this gorgeous ball of black fluff and people would come up to him and they'd want to just put their arms around him and give him a hug. And then the, as they would come toward his face, they would draw back and they'd say, oh, it's a little fragrant. And so I used that uh, for the dog in the book. And so that was that part I had sort of planned out. But there's a wonderful thing, uh, as you probably know, when you're writing and you're just writing away and um, suddenly who knows what part of your brain takes over. Uh, but that um, bad breath turned 
it ended up making a little turn in the story. And I never really intended for that to happen. But that's one of those things that kind of magically happens when you're writing. There's a girl in the book, uh, Penelope. Um, she's the friend of the of the protagonist. And um, I intended for Penelope, Penelope to exist. But then as I'm writing her magically, suddenly she has blue hair. I had not planned that. I don't know where that blue hair came from. And then she kind of wrote this backstory for herself. And it turned out to be a very sad backstory. I never would have created something like that for her. But that's what happened um, in that wonderful first magical draft. I just I love writing the first draft. Um, but then what I don't like so much is then you have to go back and <laughs> read it after it's all done. And it's just was this wonderful creation you're so proud and you go back and read it and you realize the magic doesn't work and it's full of plot holes and you have to fix it all or maybe this the antidote was too long and I actually had to cut out um, the, the the book has diseases sort of woven uh, through it and I had to cut out some of the diseases which is very sad and so um, so the second draft I don't care for that draft very much. I have a friend who has, has no ambition to publish uh, she just writes uh, first drafts of whatever she wants oh, to publish. See, write. perfect. And then she puts them on her computer. They're just for her. And she just has that that joy and that happiness. I find a lot of joy and happiness in, in revising and polishing uh, as well. But there's nothing like that first draft where everything is coming to you. I Do you agree. have a theory as uh, to where some of that stuff comes from? Is that the subconscious working out your problems while you're doing other stuff? Or is there a muse that's uh, somewhere in the, the writing room talking to you? This is such an excellent question. It's such an excellent question. I um, I also write cozy murder mysteries, and this happens for that so much. The cozy murder mysteries are um, older ladies, the fog ladies, who all live together in an elegant apartment building in San Francisco. But each of them has their own character. And darned if when you're writing, who knows? They must take over and just go for it, you know, and, and say, this is how I would have lived this scene because th things happen you don't even sometimes remember writing it you don't really remember writing it or you're writing it and you're thinking there's no way this can really happen like one of the ladies ends up on life support in the ICU and even as I was typing it I was thinking this didn't really happen because how am I going to get her off this so I, I do have no idea where it comes from but it is remarkably wonderful and predictable in that first draft you know, a lot of this, uh, a lot, a lot of writing is is very practical, uh, point A to point B. But um, I've, I've talked before, so I won't talk again about how uh, Banneker Bones wrecked my original plan for the first book. They were See? off the alligator people, and he decided he wanted to be a very different sort of character than what I had envisioned. And there it was. And those moments are about as close as I've ever been to having a, a true spiritual experience was, oh, there's something beyond me. And it could just be my subconscious. And these are the tricks it needs to play to get the words on the page. And if so, well played subconscious. It's, it's, <laughs> it's working. You know, it is it is so true. And where it comes from, who knows? And for me also, so there's that when I'm typing on the computer, but then if I get to a sticky point, I will go out for a run. That's how I work it out. And you're running along. I live near a lake, so I'm looking out at the lake. But then, boing, somewhere in the in the middle of all that, into your head pops the solution. And, you know, actually, the same thing would happen to me as a doctor. Um, sometimes you have a patient that you really, you're struggling with, and you think there's something here that I'm missing, or there's something we haven't considered yet. And oftentimes, it would come to me in the middle of the night. In fact, I keep a pad of paper next to my bed because um, it would the answer would come in the middle of the night and then I'd have to telephone the patient the next day and say I thought of something else let's look at, at this possibility and so where does that come from who knows it's our probably our brain is resting and when it's resting it's got the ability to then bring in these other parts that were always there but who knows you know I've heard other writers tell me about the notebook that they keep beside uh, their I don't because I figure if it's a good enough idea, I'll remember it in the morning. And I probably uh, have forgotten many, many brilliant ideas. Uh, but that, that's always kind of been my theory that if I write something down, it will just sit there and be a note. Whereas if I let it compete Hunger Games style with other ideas in my head, eventually the one that it's most suited for me that I really want to write will, will step forward. But when I hear that, it's usually to preserve writing. And big fan of that on this show. I think that's important. But you're doing it and there's literally could be a life life and death matter. Somebody's, somebody's on the line. It has happened several times. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's uh, 
that might be the best argument I've ever heard for why everyone should be writing a little bit. <laughs> because look how I'm assuming that, that that's a skill that's uh, that's carrying over and, and helping you. Are, is, are there other skills that transfer between your work as a doctor and your work as a writer? Oh, are those two separate uh, nope. sides of your brain? Absolutely, 100%. So, um, for instance, uh, as a doctor, one of your main roles is uh, to listen. And um, we actually, we have a phrase at work, listen to learn, listen to understand. Um, but that's exactly what we do with our characters, what we're speaking about here, what you did with yours. Um, you have to listen to your characters because if you miss that when they say, nope, I have blue hair now and I have a very sad backstory, you're going to have missed it. And so uh, listen to understand would be an excellent example of something that's in both places. Um, another thing is I teach residents at work. And one of my favorite parts about um, uh, I work in a, um, a training hospital, so we have medical residents and I love the teaching part. But um, I tell my kids, I have two kids, I tell them and I tell the residents that for life, um, one of the most important things is showing up uh, every day on time with a smile on your face and enthusiasm. Uh, and so um, that's something also for writing, which is huge. Uh, you know, just sitting in the chair every day and doing it. Um, and I think it applies to all of life, you know, not just to writing, not just to doctoring, but to everything. When did you first figure that out? Because so many people, uh, and I've been guilty of this at, at times myself, uh, never figure that out uh, and wake up grumbling and like the world owes me something. Where is it? I'm, I'm here. Come on. <laughs> when did you figure out that that wasn't the approach to take and that you are going to wake up with enthusiasm? You know, I cannot tell you that. I have always been a very optimistic person. Um, and uh, but so it may have always been part of my personality. Gotcha. So baked in originally. Well, good for you. <laughs> it sounds like a better life. <laughs> um, and then um, a lot of uh, questions to to ask about. But you know, when you're working that hard and you're you're writing on the weekend before the fam's up, uh, and then even if uh, you don't get called in uh, to work, I'm assuming you've got your hands full with two kids plus uh, all the animals that you you keep around. Um, what are you doing for fun? What does uh, unwinding time look like for you? Yeah, oh boy, we live um, in a beautiful part of the country. Um, in Seattle, it is very pretty and it's very easy to just go for a walk, which we do all the time, um, go for a run, which is one of my favorite things. Um, I'm a reader, uh, but hiking is something we do with the family a lot. It's very easy um, to go for hikes. This is all, you know, we're speaking about pre-COVID here. We don't necessarily do any of this now, but um, pre-COVID, we would do a lot of hiking. Yep. No, we can do that. We can do that. Oh, sorry. But hiking, you know, my husband and I just went on a hike recently. And uh, because it is one of the things that's a little bit safer, we've been on this hike before. It was so crowded. It was so crowded because everybody is looking for something safe, um, outdoorsy. And um, it's one of the more crowded hikes I have ever been on in the Pacific Northwest. I, we, were, we were quite surprised. But I think it's because everybody has the same idea because it is a safe thing. Well, what, what's, what's crowded look like? Are we talking like closer than six feet? Uh, That's a very funny question. So um, uh, we moved here from Washington, D.C., but I lived in San Francisco before that. And when you would go on a hike from the San Francisco area, uh, you have to drive a long way to get to the hike in the first place. But um, you get to the hike and it'd be like a line of people, a line of people on a hike. When we first moved here, which was a long time ago, it's over 20 years ago, we'd read in the guidebook, um, uh, this hike can get crowded, so make sure you get there before 10 o'clock. And so we would dutifully get up and get there really early. And maybe on the whole hike, you might see three or four other people. And we thought, oh my gosh, this is this is crowded. But that's, you know, Seattle has changed over the years and it has become very popular and very crowded. And now when you go on hikes, this hike we went on um, uh, just recently, it was just like that, a line of people. And uh, everyone stayed six feet apart, but it took some some doing to do that. And so it was a very, very crowded hike. The parking lot was overflowing and cars were parked for a mile or more on the road. And so uh, it, it was extremely crowded. So yes, it was a crowded hike. Well, heck, let them hike. You go to the movie theater, I guess, at that point if everybody's on the trail. <laughs> 
Uh, we're going to talk uh, quite a bit, probably, I, I expect, about uh, COVID. By God, you're here. You're an expert. I know esteemed audience has questions, or maybe they're, they're sick of hearing of, uh, about it, in which case we'll, we'll give you a little bit of break, because I know publicists listen to the show, and at this point they get nervous that we haven't really told esteemed audience what the antidote is about. Uh, so what does esteemed audience need to know uh, to run out and, and, and purchase their copy of the antidote? Or you know what, they could be adding it to their cart on the device, probably, if they're listening to us on. Sure. Um, so the idea for this story came um, when I was a volunteer in my middle schoolers um, science class and I volunteered there regularly. But the one I was the class I was really looking forward to was the chicken wing dissection class. And I knew I could contribute to this. And I went ready to go and I showed them the bones and the muscles and the tendons and how it all worked and how little thin strips of tissue were doing it all. And I put it in their hand and I made them do it. And I was so excited and they were pretty excited, but they weren't really that excited. And um, about the same time, because I volunteered in the classroom a lot, uh, they were also studying mythology, but they all knew everything there was to know about mythology because they had read The Lightning Thief, Rick Lord and The Lightning Thief. And so they knew everything, my kids included, they loved the stories. And so I had this idea then that I wish that they knew as much about the human body as they do about mythology and how can we make <clears throat> the human body a little bit more exciting. So that's sort of the seed of the idea for the story. But the story is um, about 12-year-old uh, Alex Revelstoke who can see disease and he can see not just disease, but injury, illness, anything wrong with the body. Um, a, a child next to him at school um, chokes on a hot dog and Alex can see it, his organ, his skin falls away. And then you can see the trachea with the hot dog chunk wedged there, um, blocking off his windpipe. And Alex, this is all new for him. He's horrified, he's shocked, he's revolted. But it also explains how all the kids always thought he was a little bit weird and he's always been a loner and he's been ostracized. And it turns out it's a family gift and he has it. And the Revelstokes don't just have this family gift. Um, they've also been fighting Ill, who is an ancient evil and the creator of and the embodiment of all disease. And Ill has come now with a final super disease and Alex is the last Revelstoke and he has to somehow save um, save the world from this last super disease. Um, there's an antidote that's been eked out by generations of Revelstokes and Alex has to choose, is he going to use it to save his dog or his new friend Penelope? Is he gonna save himself? Um, and you don't wanna know what <laughs> What happens to the to the antidote? Um, but in the story, uh, woven in there are diseases diseases that kids can encounter, like appendicitis or a heart attack. A lot of people's grandparents have had heart attacks, um, or someone in their family had an ulcer. Um, even um, uh, young athletes and um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where um, you'll have a collapse of a young athlete, that's in there. So I put little um, Easter eggs in there, like how to use an AED, an automated um, external defibrillator, uh, how to do a high maneuver when the boy chokes on the hot dog, um, but also woven in there are uh, diseases of the past like plague and Spanish flu and um, the measles, which is not always the past now, unfortunately, um, and uh, leprosy, polio. And so a little bit of history and these past pandemics and, and past pandemics were as bad as what we've got now, you know, polio, people stayed in in the summer, children were terrified around the whole world and businesses were closed and theaters were closed and swimming pools were closed and you couldn't go to your neighbors. Um, and so these, and of course, Spanish flu was very similar to what we have now. And so um, these are, are in the book as well. And, and it just was um, lucky or unlucky timing. Uh, the book was written before COVID uh, but became incredibly timely right now. So kids can see these pandemics of the past and see how science got us out of it. And we can see how science is getting us out now. Well, it's hard for me to imagine uh, pandemics when everybody's living, you know, in a one room uh, cabin or, or, or less space and nobody's got Netflix, nobody's delivering, no video games haven't been invented. That just sounds miserable. Most of the population's illiterate. 
<laughs> and nobody knew how it happened. They didn't know about viruses or or whatever it was, bacteria or viruses, whatever it was that was that was passing it. They had no idea. And so add another element of terrible fear. You know, at least now we know what causes it. Well, I want to ask you why people aren't behaving as responsibility as pandemics passed, because uh, who, who knows the answer to that? <laughs> and I have to say, when I did some research for this, people didn't always behave responsibly in pandemics past either. Um, it is unfortunate, I agree. It's one of those things where if you're not living in the information age, there's maybe a little bit more grace that I'm willing to extend. Because, hey, how were you supposed to know? You, you didn't even have a library in your town. Fair enough. But now you've got more information on your phone than anyone has ever had in the history of the world. It's right there. <laughs> but so is a lot of misinformation, so who knows? Um, but uh, keeping with the book a little bit, I, I was curious as I read it, are you a fan of uh, Odd Thomas, the Dean Koontz character? I don't think I am then, no. Oh, good news, I have a series to recommend to Excellent. you. Excellent, <laughs> I have a pencil. Um, just the, the way that, that Alex uh, sees the diseases reminded me a little bit of, of Odd Thomas and, and some of that same joy. Um, but I'll, I'll leave you to discover that joy uh, your own. But I, I wondered, um, is this sort of a doctor's fantasy uh, to be able to see disease this plainly and this obvious? You don't need to write things down uh, in the night if you could just see it plainly. Dr. House's episodes would be wrapped up in what, five, ten minutes? <laughs> He'd be so my mom, who's no longer with us, she always said, I wish I had a zipper and you could just unzip me and take a look and then tell me what was wrong. Um, so yes, wouldn't that be something? And in the um, story, the family of Revelstokes going back generations, going back centuries, they've all been doctors, they've all been healers, and some have a gift and some don't. But yeah, it'd be a lot easier if you had the gift. You are right about that. Do you think there are people who have gifts like that? Not obviously quite to the fantastic degree, but like, I don't know, say low grade uh, telepathy, telekinesis, something along those lines. So when I was researching um, the book, I have this dog in the book, Valentine. He's a very special dog. And um, animals, as you know, have tremendous abilities that we don't. Like an animal can sense your hormone levels, for instance, um, and it can maybe smell things that you're putting out through your pores, or it can smell your breath or your urine, for instance, how, how they detect lung cancer or bladder cancer. But what's coming through your pores, maybe they can detect that you've got low blood sugar if you're a diabetic, and then they give you a signal so that you eat something. Um, they can detect changes, you're gonna have a seizure. And dogs aren't the only ones. Lots and lots of animals have incredible senses. Um, so it stands to reason, I think, that if animals, all kinds of animals, have amazing abilities, probably there are some people who do too. I've never known one. And my kids have no special abilities like Alex in the book. And my dogs have never been able to do diddly squat except shake drool onto the ceiling. That's it. They're very slobbery. That's why you were putting up with the, the bad breath and the... <laughs> They're very, very slobbery. Yep. <laughs> You'd be put up with that if they can uh, diagnose disease ahead of that. Well, fair enough. That's a good trade. <laughs> um, and then um, with uh, with this book, obviously, um, there's you've done the research. You know these diseases you're talking about. But what additional research are you doing beyond simply having medical knowledge to write this story? So shockingly, there was a lot of research that needed to go into it. So um, so I'm a doctor and I'm a specialist in gastroenterology. So I do esophaguses, stomachs, uh, livers, colons, small bowel. That's all within my realm. Uh, pancreas, gallbladder, all that. That all's within me. And um, the narrower you get, the more you kind of forget a lot of the other things. Uh, for a couple of years, I was an internal medicine doctor. They do everything, so that's a much broader scope. Um, but it's so much, medicine is so big and there's so much that even for some of the straightforward diseases, I had to do a good amount of research to make sure I really had it right. And because I didn't want to say anything that was wrong, that's the other thing. So um, if I weren't a doctor writing this book, I might not have been as quite as meticulous. But if I get something wrong and I'm a doctor, it'd be 
really embarrassing. And so I did a lot of research just for the the basic um, medical stuff. And then the past pandemics, um, that was all uh, interesting, but some of it very new to me. Um, and so uh, there, was, there was a surprising amount of research that went into it. And um, when you're just, well, did you write, you, have you written this book since being retired? So this was not a weekend book or? It started as a weekend book. It started as a weekend book and it was all, it was actually completely done at the beginning of COVID. I retired after COVID. And so um, this was completely done at the beginning of COVID. So this was a weekend book. Yep, this is a weekend book. So how do you work in all the research you need to do while hitting your word count? How long does it take you to write a book like this? So I never had anything like that word count. I never really did that, um, you know, have to do so many words, whatever. I, I just wanted to be there, be productive, let it be flowing. Um, but research would be part of that. You know, if I if I was writing and I decided I was going to write in, for instance, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, perfect example. I actually had called it something else because it used to have a different name. In medicine, you probably know, uh, things go in and out of favor, names go in and out of favor, we discover new things. And so it used to have another name. And as I was, I just wrote that in and I thought I better read a little something about this. And then it turned out it had a whole new name. Who knew? I, and I actually was very interested in that because um, Newfoundlands, which our dogs were, we had English Mastiff and, and two Newfoundlands, um, they also can get this unusual heart thing. It's a thickening of the heart that can block the outflow, especially when you exercise. And that's why these young athletes can get it. And um, Newfoundlands get it. And they actually study the the disease in the Newfoundlands, you know, to learn more about the people. Anyway, that's an example of something that as I was writing it, I thought they'd better just read a little more about this. Um, so I did it during that time, during those mornings. So I did my research then. Gotcha. And then you're writing notes just whenever you have a moment between patients. Do you, are you carrying anything around with you while you're doing rounds? You mean like if an idea popped into my head? Yeah, but you got like a like a like a text or a uh, little recorder you can bust out or uh, it's all paper and paper and pencil. <laughs> it's all pen and paper. Just notes on pen and paper. I, I write on the computer, but all those little notes are on little scraps of paper. <laughs> Have you got them all saved someplace for the eventual Susan McCormick? No way. Once they are in the computer in the story, those are gone. Oh well, that's that's the library's loss. <laughs> that would have been a valuable archive. Um, and then I, I wanted to ask you because it's right up front, uh, you're, you're beginning with some, with some, you know, uh, graphic medical detail and that doesn't stop throughout. Uh, and this is, you know, there's this kind of floating idea that I don't think anybody has a definitive grasp on of what's appropriate for children, what's not appropriate for children. You're talking science, you're talking real stuff. Um, but you're also, I mean, the, the first uh, sentence, which I love, by the way, great hook about, uh, oh, I'd better butcher it. I'd never seen a kid's face melt off or a kid's skin melt off, um, <laughs> which is fantastic. Uh, right away, especially as a child, you, you had my rapt attention. Yes, go on. I want to see the skin melt. Uh, and there there are lots of details you're not. Um, you're not holding back from explaining all the many the, the many wonderfully terrible things that can happen to a human body over the course of a lifetime. Where did you decide? How did you decide what was appropriate and what was not appropriate? Or was it if it can if it's in the realm of science, it's all appropriate? What was your approach? You know, I despite all the graphic detail that is in the book. A lot of it is not. So there you are right. There is a lot of science and a lot of disease that is really icky. And I actually chose very carefully and um, much of it is not there that started there because I didn't end up deciding it was appropriate. Um, and you're right, there are descriptions. And um, I'll just give an example of the necrotic fingers. Um, with some of the diseases, because you can't get blood flow to the very ends of your body because your body is all clamped down, um, of course, the ends of your fingers and toes and the end of your nose can lose the blood flow and then the tissue turns dark and, um, and dies and it's called necrosis. And so that's a description that I used and then at the end of the book there's a a guide about the infectious diseases and I talk about the symptoms that can happen and I, I um, describe what the word necr necrotic means and I had to choose my 
my wording very carefully because I didn't want it to be too icky. And um, because these are uh, not doctors uh, and um, I didn't want people to get squeamish and I wanted it to be for all readers. And so though there is a good amount of description in there, I actually took out a lot. And um, there's going to be a curriculum guide. It's it's being developed now. I'm developing it, developing it with a teacher um, who um, is very facile at this, and she's excellent. And she sent me some of her preliminary work, and she had photographs. And she actually had photographs of um, necrotic or, or fingers that had blackened tips. And it's one thing to read about uh, blackened tips of the fingers, but it's quite another to see the picture. So she and I talked about it, and that picture is, won't be there because um, it, it's it's easier to read about something. It's a newspaper. I do the newspaper, read it every day, cover to cover, but I don't really watch the news. And I can read something in the newspaper, and it is um, has a different effect on me than if I were to see that clip being played um, on the news. And so same for the description in the book. I, I tried to keep it as ungory but interesting as I could but it, it's interesting to hear that it comes across a lot of it as a little on the gory side. I, I think I think some of it might just be and I, I never know how much of this is just me which I never want to assume that the reading public is like me. Uh, that's the first step toward writing <laughs> terrible this uh, is an assumption like that but I do notice that there's well obviously part of what motivated you to write this is these kids have got this Greek mythology down and that's great that's really going to come in handy if you're playing uh, what is it the immortals or Assassin's Creed Odyssey you were going to know who those characters are and how, how wonderful that's going to be for you if you go on to write your own novels you can call the alligator people the Elysians and how clever you are you've got your your Greek history down but that is not as practical and as useful um, as what you're offering, as warning signs for what could be going wrong, things that everyone should be aware of. Why, um, why do you think that, that uh, I'm not going to ask you to address the ills of, a, of an entire society, but why do you think that people get so squeamish about this hard medical stuff that, you know, um, that like it, don't like it, most of us don't like it, is stuff we need to be aware of, is stuff we need to be taken seriously. Hopefully this pandemic uh, certainly has had the impact on me and will have the impact on other people that, oh, hey, we're taking health for granted um, and we should be paying more attention. So hopefully that will have an impact. But why do you think people are so reticent to discuss this stuff, to know this stuff, this practical information as opposed to the fantastical? You know, I'm hoping that it's just a matter of um, making it interesting, making it fun, making it an adventure story. Um, I'm hoping. I, you are right about that. Um, so some of it, I thought this is just going to be too boring. Uh, so there's the there's the gory end, which you know makes you squeamish and and. But for kids, sometimes that's a little bit exciting too, and I tried not to make it too gory. But then there's parts that I thought, I don't want them to get too bored. Like for instance, stroke, super important concept. Stroke, what can you see and identify stroke? Because you only have a certain amount of time after someone has a stroke to get them to the emergency room, to get them the treatment that they need to open up the blood vessels to the blood to the brain, uh, for the blood to the brain. And so stroke is super important for everybody to know about. So I put that in the book. And I thought, how am I going to make this not boring? So there's the two sides to it. So I am hoping that um, by making things fun and interesting, that um, that you can get kids to say, well, this is kind of cool. Um, and I'm hoping that they're not going to, that those parts will hold them. And they're not going to think that some of the other parts are boring, like the stroke, um, which is in there. And it goes pretty fast, but it is in there, how to recognize a stroke. That makes sense to me. Uh, well, hopefully uh, everyone's going to read the antidote, obviously, uh, and you're going to write sequels and more people are going to write more medically focused stuff. And we're going to turn this ship around. Are sequels to, to the antidote? I, there, there are. Um, yes. Uh, so I have. It's funny how it happened on a run. It popped into my head how to make a sequel because um, the book doesn't end. Sometimes when you read a book, it ends clearly on a, 
you know, we have a sequel coming. This one doesn't, but I do know where it goes. Um, and um, to that end about COVID, you are right that uh, right now kids for, so polio happened mm, up until the 50s, say, 50s, let's say that, up until the 50s. So these are current children's grandparents and great-grandparents who went through that. That's the last time we had something that the whole world felt like this. So current kids, current adults, we've never been through anything like this. And so right now, kids have seen terrible disease come and in some cases take people that they loved. They have seen scientists figure out what it was. How quickly did we figure out what it was? Really quickly. How to test for it? Super quickly. A vaccine in less than a year? Unheard of. But that's because for years behind the scenes, they've been working on something that was kind of similar. Years, you know, it didn't just happen in a year. It took years to get here, but it was ready and just had to be tweaked. And then they saw like in our hospital overnight, we got um, negative pressure rooms, which if you had someone who's infected, you can have a room that the um, air pressure changes to keep the infection in the room and out of the corridor. But overnight, we got a whole bunch of them rather than just the couple that we had before. And engineers did that. You know, engineers worked around the clock to make those rooms. And engineers across the nation, across the, the world probably, refigured how we make ventilators because we had the ventilator shortage. Students in college, engineering students in college made ventilators. And so people, young people are seeing all of this. And I think the time is right for um, for an interest in science like this because uh, we need future science people. Uh, we need clear thinking, critical thinking that comes with science. And our kids, this this is the perfect time because they've seen it all play out in just one year. Science has saved the world. So, okay, well, here we are. Let's let's talk COVID. What? Uh, where do you where do you see us headed? And obviously, I, I should mention uh, uh, Steve. The audience is hearing us in May. We are talking April sixth. So, whatever's happened past April sixth, we don't know about it. But how it? How do you foresee the the pandemic progressing? I keep hearing um, that. It, we're almost out of the woods. I know some people are behaving as though they are. Um, and then I, I've also heard that we could be looking at with variants in the two, three years of intermittent lockdowns. How do you see things playing out knowing that, of course, you don't have a crystal ball? Nobody's going to hold you to this. You're right. You know, so I am just just a doctor in amongst this uh, with everybody else. Um, I will say, though, that here in Seattle, um, we have a huge number of people who want to be vaccinated. I think we're number one in the nation of people who want the vaccine. So that's excellent um, because the vaccine is absolutely 100% the first step, whether or not there are variants that it doesn't cover, you know, 90 to 95% like it does the regular one, um, it covers them some. So by far and away, the more people who are vaccinated, the better. And then the masks, who knew simple mask turned out to be incredibly useful. Um, and those two things alone are going to carry us really, really far. Um, I do vaccinations on the weekends and um, the uh, in Seattle here, the number of people who were older getting the vaccine has now we're getting, not everybody, of course, there's still a good percentage who haven't been vaccinated who are older. But now when I go to do my um, vaccines, the population's much younger who's coming for them. Uh, we still haven't gotten to the everybody yet here, but um, soon. I mean, this is phenomenal that we have in such a short period of vaccine that can help so much. It can help so much. And, you know, you've probably seen these stories in the press about um, we tend to dwell on the negative. And we do, and I dwell on the negative just like you. What's this variant going to do? It's, you know, if people don't get vaccinated, how is that going to affect everybody who does get vaccinated? But just the huge positivity of having this vaccine that is tweakable. So it doesn't cover the variants. So then they can tweak it. It is tweakable. And so um, I have nothing but optimism. But being the cautious person I am, we may be in masks for quite some time. Quite some time, meaning what, two, three years, maybe? I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out, it turns out, who knew? You know, wearing a mask does not turn out to be the horrible thing 
you know, I might have imagined uh, I, now it's more than a year ago, you know, well over a year ago. I, I, I've gotten very used to it. Many people have gotten very used to it. There are fun masks. You know, there are animal masks. You can have a dog face if you want. So um, it didn't turn out with glasses. You wear glasses. I wear glasses. It's not the easiest uh, with glasses, but I have found some that even work with glasses. And so um, it didn't turn out to be the most horrible thing in the world to wear a mask. No, it's not. Um, and I, I, I bring up the the negative because that's we want to focus. We want to pay attention to that. That's we we're wrong about that. Don't worry about anything else. Um, but at the same time, I do feel much more positive every day that we get into 2021. And I say, oh, okay, without talking politics, the mad person that told everyone to inject themselves with disinfectant no longer a factor. Um, thank God, the insurrection maybe came real close. Didn't happen. We've got some stability of that away. And Zack Snyder's Justice League came out, and by God, it was better than the original Justice League. Superman and Batman are back. The world is a better place day by day. I'm 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 seeing the sun. So And and not only that, but the number of vaccines, you know, shockingly, think how few vaccines were being given just even two or three months ago, compared to now the number of vaccines in arms every day, it's enormous. Yes, thank you uh, to to our powers that be. We have vaccine to give. My wife is uh, fully vaccinated as of uh, three days ago, and I've got my appointment scheduled. Uh, although I'm uh, hopping on the wait list because I don't mind uh, getting, if somebody misses their appointment, give it to me. Don't, don't throw it out. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Do you have, well, you know what, this is probably an impossible question and I, I regret starting to ask it because I'll probably edit it right out, but we'll try it. Uh, do you have a preference of the three vaccines currently available between the Pfizer, the Johnson & Johnson, and the Moderna? Absolutely not. The only, to, the only thing to say is Johnson & Johnson is one. So two weeks after that, you're as fully vaccinated as Johnson & Johnson you know, is. And then Pfizer, um, the second shot's at three weeks. And then uh, Moderna, the second shot's at four weeks. So the timing is different until you're fully vaccinated. The quickest being the Johnson & Johnson, second quickest Pfizer, third quickest Moderna. But other than that, gosh, if we have any vaccine to offer, yes, it's fine. So when you're fully vaccinated, um, well, we'll do a little public service announcement here in the middle of our conversation. What, uh, what should life look like once you've got your full vaccination? Goodbye, mask. Hello, walking around, hugging all the strangers. So, this is a moving target too. You know, who knows when people will be watching this. This is such a moving target. So we don't know for 100% certain. Can you get it and give it a little bit? You know, but probably by the time you um, this airs, we might know the answer to that question. But I think to be safe, everyone still has to wear their mask. We just had... Our first disclosure will have happened. The aliens will have given us a full cure. It won't be a problem. <laughs> I'm sorry, you were saying. Uh, we just had our first family Easter where um, we actually could sit at the same table um, without uh, masks. It was very exciting. Inside, you know, it was just our, our immediate family, just immediate family. But we do have a kid who's away at college um, who came home uh, for the Easter and the first one, our first Easter without the masks. Yeah, uh, it's been tremendous. It's very exciting. So we're pivoting back uh, a little bit to writing. So first, uh, first, uh, the anecdote, first book, uh, you're writing, that's a weekend book, and now you're allegedly possibly working on a sequel. So what does that look like during a pandemic? How do you keep your focus when, especially last year, when some all these positive things we're talking about hadn't yet come to pass and, you know, we don't know how the history book's going to turn out. We have no idea what's going to happen. How do you quiet that madness down long enough to get some words on the page? Yeah, that's super interesting. And that probably also comes from being a doctor, right? So um, some people are able to um, think about this right now and think about this right now and think about this right now. And of course, when you're a doctor, um, bad things can happen. And then you have to go right on to help somebody else right after that sometimes. And so um, you do get some training in how to think about something later. You know, there's a place and a time to think about this and it's not right now. And so um, as uh, we retired um, COVID, we were well into COVID when, when my husband and I retired uh, and it had been planned for a year ahead. It just happened to come in the middle of COVID, which was very unusual. Uh, 
but um, as I was thinking for this whole year, planning my retirement, I was thinking of being home all alone, doing my writing all alone. My husband has wonderful hobbies and he can keep entertained for a long time. And so that's how I envisioned it. But that is not what happened in any way, stretch or form. So we had the kid come home from college and um, we have a high schooler still and everybody needed a computer. Everybody needed a space. Everybody needed internet. And um, everybody's hours were completely different when they were eating breakfast, lunch, dinner. It was, um, and this this story played out, you know, across the whole world. Everybody had to deal with this, as did we. Um, so my story is not unique, but it was just, it was not how I envisioned spending my lovely, leisurely, uh, newly retired doctorate uh, writing days. Um, but then things settled out and uh, we sent our kid back to college and um, the high school kid. So at first then I thought, okay, I'll get up. Uh, we used to get up before six and get to the hospital after some time between seven and seven fifteen. But now we sleep in. So we sleep into about seven. So I thought, okay, from seven to about noon when the kid has lunch, that's when I'll do my writing. And that was great. But then he would go back to class till three o'clock. I thought, well, I can keep writing. So then it was seven small 20 minute break for lunch and then keep writing till three o'clock. And then he had homework and crew practice. They do single single skulls now, so it's very safe. He had to pivot from the big boat to the single skull. So it's all he's all by himself out there. Okay, but he had crew practice. So then he wouldn't be home till like six. Okay, well, why can't I write from seven in the morning till six at night. So this is this is what happened for me. It was so exciting. Um, I actually finished that project. That that was the first draft, you know, of a of a story. And so I finished that project, and uh, that enthusiasm quickly waned when now I was finding plot holes and had to put in hyphens and words and get out all the adverbs and make it uh, active voice, not passive. That excitement to write from seven till six uh, quickly went away. Um, but that was how I did it for a bit when I was in that first stage bit after retiring. That's uh, incredible training. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, if you've got to put all of the, whatever happened the day before that was you know good, bad, different, put that aside and focus on the now, your brain's pre-trained. You were probably, you and other medical workers uh, are uniquely trained to write in a way that a lot of uh, us other writers were maybe caught flat-footed. Because um, I know I, you know, I, I had my own adventure with, with trying to focus and I've got several writing friends, some of whom quit completely, uh, some of whom wrote like they've never written before because like, let's let me block out the world and just do this and I'll catch up on all the bad news later, uh, which I think of the two strategies might be a little bit of a better one, but that's that's my bias toward uh, productivity. <laughs> um I'm watching our time, uh, and I know that we're we're coming here to the end. An esteemed audience knows I have to ask because I ask everybody. Uh, and obviously, as I mentioned, by the time this airs, UFO disclosure will have happened. So this this will be a moot question probably at that point. But as of today, April sixth, it hasn't happened yet. Have you, Susan McCormick, ever <laughs> seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Oh, let's take the ghost one. Okay, flying saucer. Um, I have seen lights in the sky but I did not assume they were flying saucers. So I maybe don't have the correct mentality for that, but let's go ghost. Okay, so ghost, I completely believe in ghosts. And in fact, um, one of my very first stories when I was in high school uh, involved a ghost. And I think, um, I don't think this magazine exists anymore. Like, I think there was a magazine called 17. And I, as I remember it, they had a writing contest. Maybe it was called Mademoiselle. I can't, it, they were, those were both magazines I read as a kid, but one of them had a writing contest and, um, and I actually sent this story that involved a ghost uh, to the writing contest. I, it went nowhere. But yes, I believe in ghosts. So you, you have seen one or you just have a belief that they are? No, I have not seen a ghost. But you have to think um, that certain things happen. Um, you know, who's to say that these these ideas that pop into your head aren't, don't pop from some other place? Who knows? Uh, but no, I have never knowingly encountered a ghost. Does a belief in ghosts uh, comfort you when you're in, I'm assuming that you're uh, so excellent a doctor that you never lost a patient ever. Uh, but if that were not true and, 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 and you did lose some, does that comfort you, bring you some comfort in thinking that they're going to go on to some other form? You know, I suppose it doesn't. Um, 
anybody, uh, I don't know if your parents are still alive, but my mom died and um, my husband's father died. This is a few years ago now, but similar thing happened to both of us. And it, it probably happens to lots and lots of people um, that a couple of weeks later or a couple of months later, or, or it goes on years later, uh, you have a dream. And it's so vivid. It's so vivid. And and in my case, it's my mom giving excellent advice or just talking, um, uh, giving her opinion on something. Um, but it's so vivid that, you know, when you wake up, you can remember the whole conversation and the advice is excellent. And so I take it um, or it's comforting in some way of a, of a, a problem I'm having. Um, and so are those ghosts? Because how else does that pop into your head? I mean, maybe it's just my brain thinking what my mom might say, but it could be a ghost. And lots of people who have lost a loved one like that um, can hear the loved one's thoughts. Even if it were nothing more than a metaphorical immortality, that's not nothing. If that voice continues on in your head forever and inspires you in your choices, that is immortality, isn't it? Agreed. Yeah. Although I would far prefer to come back as a ghost. <laughs> Metaphors won't do me any favors if uh, if I'm not aware that uh, there's no me. <laughs> uh, well, I could ask you all sorts of weird, quirky questions about supernatural abilities and ghosts and flying saucers all night, but I won't. Uh, I will uh, end this uh, with the same question I, I usually end the show. But thank you, uh, Dr. McCormick, for, for making the time and for being such an absolutely excellent guest. Uh, my last question is always some variation of if you could go back toward the start of your writing career or whenever you like uh, and give yourself some advice that maybe would have made things easier for you and might make things easier for all the writers who are listening to us now, what would you go back and tell yourself? So I can actually remember what I consider to be the start of my writing career. I remember it um, so vividly. Uh, the, so in elementary school, I was probably, say, fourth, fifth grade, and was chosen to go to this the town's Young Authors Conference, where they would have local authors and workshops and things like that, meant for kids who are in elementary school. And I was so excited about going that I dreamed God had allowed me to skip Friday and get right to Saturday when the conference was. So I woke up on Friday morning. I completely thought it was Saturday. I told my parents, we got to go to the conference. No, it's Friday. You have to go to school. No, it's not Friday. It's conference day. And I was so furious and frustrated because I thought I was going to miss the conference because God had told me I could skip Friday. And so I was that excited to be a writer who was going to this young authors conference and um and, and that enthusiasm has despite the fact that it took a long time uh to get here um it that enthusiasm has uh continued on and so the advice is so maybe two parts one we've spoken about before bottoms in chairs you know, this is called uh, butts in seats, but bottoms in chairs is how I'll say it. You have to sit there and do the work. But the second part is um, to persevere. Uh, the first book that I um, published was a picture book about Alzheimer's disease, lighthearted picture book about Alzheimer's disease because my mom had Alzheimer's disease and I had young children at the time. And um, when I would pitch this, the agents and editors would say, um, I love the story, but we already have a book about Alzheimer's disease in the pipeline. So I actually self-published that book several years ago, and I was so pleased with it because it had been such a passion. And then I write cozy murder mysteries, and um, I'd be told, oh, love cozies, but cozies are out. We don't want cozies. We want noir and edgy and vampires and goth and the unreliable narrator. But then the world got edgy and unreliable. And now cozies were back in. And so my actually had two small publishers vying for my cozy manuscript, which was fantastic. And then the antidote was done and ready and waiting. And unfortunately, COVID happened. It made it extremely timely. Um, and so uh, perseverance is the second thing. So first, you got to do the work um, every, however it works. It wasn't every day for me by a long stretch, 
but um, the writing part. Uh, but then um, the optimism that something will come of it and the perseverance um, to continue on. Uh, you know, my whole doctor career has come and gone. I mean, I still hope I can do some things, volunteer and that sort of thing. But uh, now I'm a writer. I mean, it is it is something. The dream has come true, one of many. So you've uh, you've lived you've lived the life. You uh, you had nine years in the army. You've got full experience uh, as a doctor. All the pets, uh, two kids, fully grown, doing great. You did it. <laughs> and, and I'm going to be talking to you ten years from now. We're going to be talking about oh my god, can you believe science cured all pandemics ever? How fortunate. <laughs> and we'll talk about uh, the series of, of books you've written since. Um, Dr. McCarthy, where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media, find more information about your books, all that good stuff? Sure. Um, the books are available everywhere. You can get it through your local bookstore. You can get it through Baker and Taylor or Ingram, um, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, the whole shebang. Um, there will be an audiobook soon, uh, but uh, it's ebook and paperback now. Um, and uh, my website, simple, susanmccormickbooks.com. And um, I'm on Facebook and uh, Twitter and Instagram as well. Some variation of that, Susan McCormick Books or S. McCormick Books. Uh, esteemed audience, as always, head to middlegradeninja.com. My God, why aren't you there right now? The whole archives of the show awaits you. Uh, more information about uh, about me, but more importantly, interviews with authors, uh, literary agents, publishing professionals. Download your copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.